Brothers Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, dear brothers, sisters, friends, and those foes out there as well. Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast. It's a sad day for me. Um, as you may have already noticed, I haven't got my blood brother with me. Um, Aki's a bit busy, and he, I'm sure he'll be missed for this episode. So please forgive me in advance if there's a bit of a, a downer to my character. I'll try my best not to, but hey. We're joined today for the first time by two guests, two doctors, not GP, so they're not that important. Uh, but nevertheless, they are very, very intelligent. Uh, so again, apologies in advance if I am made to look or feel dumb in this episode. But we are joined by Dr. Fahad Qureshi, a lecturer in sociology, and Dr. Rizwan Sabir, a lecturer in criminology. Assalamu alaikum, brothers. Welcome to Blood Brothers Podcast. Thank you for having me. How was the journey to Bedford? Long. How long? Four, all four hours. Three. We left in uh, Russia. Three hours. We got here, alhamdulillah. We got here. I'm very honoured to have you on. Thank you, Pat. And you guys are as important as GPs. <laughs> We're more important. We run society, bro. You understand? And nicely leads on to the first issue at hand, <laughs> right? While the doctors are saving lives, physically actually saving lives and preventing illnesses, uh, academics uh, in both your fields and other fields. How do you guys perceive your professions in terms of its importance in man, life, and universe? Like you just said, you run society. How do you run society? Look, I think that um, there's different dimensions to society, right? So you, know, you have GPs that they save lives, right? You have different professions that are contributing in different ways. Sociologists contribute in ways that isn't always obvious. Okay, one of the things that we're interested in is long-term trends. Looking at you know why do things happen in certain ways, um, what causes certain social issues and 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 you know certain social problems that that exist. There might be certain solutions that are put forward and they may not work or they may work well. And we look at why those things happen and how they happen and what works and what doesn't work. Um, I think that's very important. You know, I, one of the things that I like doing. Is I like watching, you know, uh, you watch these kind of bag wheels kind of shows where people get left on an island for like months. <clears throat> Love Island. Not Love Island. Oh, okay. Stuff like, um, I think Bag Wheels had a program called The Island, literally called The Island. Okay. Where they basically dropped off 20 people on an island. I don't watch Love Island, by the way. No, neither do I. Just I don't even know what it is. Yeah, okay. You probably know more about it. <laughs> no, no, Okay. Um, and, and, you know, 20 people get left on, the, on, on an island. And they told her to, to, to off you go, live here for a year. There was one in, I think it was one in uh, in the Highlands in Scotland last year, where they were literally dropped off on an island for mm. a year. Off you go and carry. And one of the interesting things that I observe in that's in, in in those kind of situations is that whilst they have enough food and water and all these kinds of things to survive, the reason that people have mental breakdowns is because their society and the way it's functioning isn't functional. There's breakdown. There's there's breaking of relationships. There's no order. There's no, you know, there's no sort of agreement about how how things should run. And I think sociologists can look at you know look at that situation and and, and make suggestions and, and and really you know talk about how societies should run, what works, what doesn't work, who does it benefit, who doesn't it benefit, who does it work for, who doesn't it work for, you know. And there's different theories to that as well. So you know you might have a Marxist that says society works for the benefit of the 
uh, of the proletariat. Ah, uh, another proletariat, the, the, the elite, right? yeah. The, the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie, yeah, the, the elite. Hmm. You might have feminist theorists who say, well, it's, all, it's, it's men who benefit in this society, so society is run for men. So you have different people who come with different angles about society. So I think, you know, sociologists, um, really, that, that's what they're looking at, you know, how is society itself? Why is it the way that it is? Hmm. Who does it benefit? Who doesn't it benefit? Who gets left behind? Who gets ahead? And can we do anything about that? Can we try and redress the balance? Can we? How can we, you know, identify social problems and and, and deal with them? That's a really good case for sociology. It really, it, it, it really nearly makes me wonder what the hell a criminologist does. Um, I do often spend a lot of time thinking the same thing. <laughs> Uh, no, the I mean, I I'm, don't want to get too caught up on looking at these kind of disciplinary boundaries. Uh, I look at social science as um, an area of study in which we study society and ask yeah. questions as to why society is the way it is, like I have just said, right? Mm. But I think academia for me, uh, something personally, is is an opportunity to not only learn about these subjects in great detail, but to try and take that learning to a broader community and an audience uh, with the hope um, that the knowledge that you share uh, in whatever format it may take uh, will have a positive contribution in society. But so, so do you guys, let me just ask you a frank question. You know, when you guys meet people who are non-academics, do you ever feel frustrated that you're speaking to dumb people? Never. Uh, no. Five. You thought about that. You, no. you, that passed you for two seconds. No, no, no. Okay. So. Not at all. Okay. Do you feel that beyond academia and academics, do you feel other people in society can have intellectual depth? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you don't feel that it's only restricted to academics? Absolutely not. Because intelligence and intellect is not uh, measured in certainly in my perspective dependent upon whether you did a PhD yeah. or whether you have tenure at a university. But it's certainly a metric these days. Well, of course, yeah, because absolutely. society has to quantify mm. and assign labels to certain things. Uh, that's not to um, discount the significance of academics and those who are professional intellectuals. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because the purpose of an academic is to go away and to sieve through heaps of data and knowledge uh, in order to create new knowledge that helps society. And the only way that uh, people can develop their own thinking is when they have uh, the support of theories and knowledge uh, which has been created uh, by people who have spent a considerable amount of time researching and examining a particular subject area. So how do you feel when someone who hasn't invested that much of their life years and they decide to talk on topics which are essentially your lot's uh, science? It's your it's your thing. So how would you feel if, let's say, I don't know, a Muslim YouTuber discusses issues of sociology or social science issues? Let me ask you. Let me ask you another way. Mm. Um, let's say, for example, God forbid this doesn't happen. Let's say you've got kids. Yeah. And your kids. God forbid that doesn't happen. No, no, kids, no, 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 of course you don't. I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. Listen to the full story. Okay. Let's say you've got kids. Yeah. And you. One of your child falls seriously ill. Yeah. God forbid that doesn't happen. Okay. Yeah. Now let's say your let's say for example your 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 child broke its leg. Yeah. Take it. Take. Okay. You got a neighbour next door mm. works as a car salesman mm. and says to you, um, 
you know, you know that this person goes to the library a lot and likes to read books on medicine. Doesn't have any formal education, any formal qualification or anything like that. Mm. But he's told you that he's read all of the books on surgery in his local library. Mm. Okay. When your when your child breaks their leg and needs surgery, and you've got a neighbour who um, has read all the books on medicine and surgery in the local library, who are you going to take your child to? Your next door neighbour, or to the hospital where there's professional, educated, uh, experienced surgeons who are going to operate on your daughter? Where are you going to go? So I'll answer that. Of course, I'll go to the doctors or any because they are the ones who have that actual real life uh, experience and knowledge and practice of how to deal with the broken leg. Okay, let, let me. I want to ask you something. What's the difference between the level of education that your neighbours got mm. compared to the one that the doctors have got in the hospital? What's the difference in that education? That he's actually gone for a more traditional and structured form of learning, which has then uh, permeated into a profession and actual real life experience. Cool. So you know what expertise is. Yeah. There's a difference between being knowledgeable and having expertise. Yeah. I don't sound arrogant when I say all this kind of stuff. So far, you do, and I'm very conscious of that, right? Because I don't want to. I don't want to sound like that, but it's very important. Mm. And this is a very important Islamic point as well. Mm. Allah says that there are, in the Quran, he says there are things that are clear, what is halal, what is haram, and then there are things that there can be the grey areas. Mm. And in those disputes, go to the scholars. Mm. He doesn't say go to your neighbour. Doesn't say go on the internet and check. He said go to the scholars. Mm. In other words, people who've studied this stuff. Mm. The difference between being knowledgeable and having expertise is that you know you you acquire expertise in the presence and through the engagement with other scholars. Do you understand? You don't just go on your own to the library and read all the books that you can find on a particular subject, or sit on Google and say, you know what, I've digested all this information uh, on this subject in my local library. Therefore, I'm an expert. No, expertise is something that is acquired in collaboration with other experts, because you and I could look at. Is there a place for my next door neighbor then who has read lots of books about how to mend a broken leg? Does he have anything to offer? Yes, but it's not expertise, right? But, is but it... what I'm saying to you is this, right? And the reason that's important is you and I can look at the same piece of data, right? Mm. And we can come to two very different conclusions on that data. And the question is, which of those two conclusions is the one that's more valid? Now, you need expertise to be able to make that judgment. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, and that's what expertise gives you. That's what studying with other scholars, professors, sheikhs, whoever, that's what that gives you. And that's why expertise is really, really important. Because you've acquired knowledge from other people who themselves have been given ijazah, what we call in the Islamic world, ijazah. So do you, yes. do you perceive yourself, sorry, Fatin, so, so do you perceive yourself, because I've, I've, I've noticed that you've made quite a few refer overt references. So do you perceive uh, Western academia being qualified in those sciences similar to the Islamic sciences? Uh, or, the, or that the, the, the doctors and the, and the academics of these fields deserve that same level of respect and maqam as an Islamic scholarship? It's difficult. Um, but I, my, my gut reaction is to say, I don't see why not, because just like an Islamic scholar has studied in a, in a situation with an other, with another sheikh mm. or several sheikhs, mm. and they then got their ijazah. Similarly, an academic doesn't become an academic, doesn't become an expert until they've acquired a PhD, for example, mm. which they've studied in collaboration with other professors. Right, mm. who then grilled them? They they've taken three to four, five, six, whatever. Is this what's known as peer reviewed? 
yeah, this is basically like the, the process of acquiring a PhD is that you study a particular subject in depth with several professors who, who guide you and interrogate you uh, along the way, usually three to four years. Um, and then at the end of that process, you have a vibe, which is basically two other professors who are experts in your field, mm. then interrogate your PhD. Why did you, why did you reach these conclusions? Yeah. Why did you use this method? Why did you use this theory? Why did you use this one? Why didn't, why didn't you come to this conclusion? You know, I look at this and I, I look at your data and I've come to a different conclusion. Why did you come to this conclusion and not that conclusion? Mm. So you, you go through a process, just like you go through a process in Islamic schools. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to be said about how, you know, Western academia has learned has taken this system of ijazah from the Muslim world. Without a shadow of a doubt. You know, if you look if you look at the Renaissance and, and, and even the period of enlightenment, yes, of even, even the thinkers, of course, and there's some overt references to the likes of Ghazali and other Islamic yeah. thinkers. But one of the one of the things I'm starting to notice, which let me bring you in because Faz totally dominating this so far. But anyway, look, let me ask you this. I've noticed something. I hope my observations are wrong. I just find sometimes academics. And what are you going to say? I'm, well, you said it yourself. You said, I, wanted, I don't want to sound arrogant. Now, when you say that you don't want to sound arrogant, what ends up happening is that ivory towers are built. And all that, all that really high fly language that you guys are discussing. And by the way, both of you, mashallah, have done some great work uh, in the fields of um, CVE, uh, institutional racism and Islamophobia, as well as other, as other things. But even I find it hard to suggest, and I wouldn't really classify myself to be entirely a layman per se, but I still find it very hard to but, digest. But, but why should you, ex like, again, I don't want to sound arrogant, but if you're not an expert in a particular subject, why should you expect to just be able to pick up a book and go with it? No, I'm saying that there should be an expectation on you guys to make it digestible for the masses. So tell me, how you, are you guys doing that? Do you feel that there is a disconnect between you guys in your academic circles talking about very yeah. important things that affect real life people from your own communities and, and, and society by and large? But there's a disconnect in trying to understand when these guys are talking about these things, why can I not understand? Isn't, isn't there an onus on you guys? Yeah, so when you guys don't do that, you will get YouTubers will come along that's fine. Or guys will come and be like, fine, if they're not going to do it, I'll just make it, yeah. I'll dumb it down so the masses can understand. I don't think that's why that happens, but I understand the point that you're making. Mm, if we had a charismatic Muslim academic YouTubers, you think you'll find that there'll be massive traction for yeah. that? I think, I think this comes down to um, the ability of the academic to express complex ideas yeah. in a way that is digestible, that is understandable. However, you because i've always struggled with this myself um you know when i started off reading academic works and theory uh i used to really struggle you do a good job of dumbing down things for me Riz. Uh, that's because probably because i'm a dumb person no i don't say that or every wise person knows himself <laughs> to be a fool <laughs> same logic or every wise man thinks himself to be knows himself to be a fool who said that but, who said that oh, it's a nice saying you know let I think it comes down to the ability of the individual uh, to what extent they understand something and to what extent they have an ability to communicate that understanding in a language that is accessible and understandable. However, I would say this, um, I think it's every uh, academic's duty to write things in a way that is accessible but remains true to the spirit and the complexity of an issue um that's being discussed because what happens is if you if you simplify something too much it loses the nuance 
And if you lose the nuance, then it becomes just another simplistic theory um, that doesn't really give uh, the receiver the kind of complexity that they need to grapple or understand. These are complex issues. That's why I'm always having issues with word limits and your pieces, isn't it, Fad? Yes. Yeah. It's difficult. It takes me. But you managed to do a good piece with the Black Panthers, and you explained some very complex issues there in the, in the yeah. decent word limit. Yeah. The so I, think, I think it also ties down to how well an individual understands the subject themselves. Because if you, you know, when I did my PhD five years ago, um, you know, it took me best part of one and a half year just to understand the basics of Antonio Gramsci's theory of hegemony. But now I can explain that to you. Say that again. Two sentences. Say that again. Right. Antonio Gramsci and his theory of hegemony, uh -huh. how, some, how, invis how power operates invisibly mm. and has an ability to construct certain practices as commonsensical. Mm. So the things that we assume are just commonsensical or normal to do, mm. how they are constructed mm -hmm. by powerful institutions and powerful people, powerful organizations, right? It took me a year and a half to understand that. Now I can tell you how those organizations and how that power operates through coercive power, the army, the courts, the police service, and civil society, education, religion, um, the family, um, cultural spaces, and the media. How both of those intersect in order to give something legitimacy or to construct something as normal and natural and that took you how long to understand a year and a half a year and a half yeah do you think you can dumb it down for the masses i think i just have okay. and i think if you if you pay attention yeah. um to like like what's being said and sometimes that's all it takes is it takes a little bit of concentration mm. rather than i should be able to get this by just flicking it mm -hmm. and i think um technology uh has a part to play in this that it's created an expectation on everything to be understandable within the kind of 280 yeah. character or mean format. Okay. And I think that's created a really difficult situation for us a lot as well, because we're competing now with influencers and uh, individuals and organizations that predominantly deal with 280 characters mm. or mean type uh, imagery in order to get a point across. Um, and we are expected to do exactly the same thing and to summarize for example, 10 years of uh, scholarship on counterterrorism into a tweet. And it's impossible to do that without losing the complexity. Would you guys, would you guys ever consider, like, you both specifically, uh, and maybe other Muslim academics who will watch this uh, podcast or listen to it, would you guys then ever consider taking under your wing, or at least at the very basic of it, as a form of counsel to influencers, bloggers and vloggers who want to discuss these issues but want to seek your counsel in doing so. 100%. Do that all the time. Nobody wants the counsel of academics generally in life. <laughs> Could you guys take so long explaining something? Uh, it's because yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with that. Can there ever be a compromise? No, but the Prophet said, look, okay, let me ask you, because you, cause, cause you yeah, made... Let me make the point. There's nothing wrong with that. Because... But you made a reference to Allah and his messenger earlier, and you were right. But at the same time, you can also say that the Prophet Sallam, when he spoke to a Bedouin, he spoke in very simple language. And when he spoke to the leaders of Quraysh, he spoke in very complex and high. So, 
I think, you know, I agree with this point. And I think um, I'm going to make an admission. He agreed with me, Fad. I'm going to make an admission now, which might come and bite me in the future someday. I hope I it think doesn't. There's an element of institutionalization that takes place. When you are constantly within a particular environment, you're constantly using particular language, particular terms, particular points of reference, then what happens inevitably is is that you start taking that for granted and you lose the ability to engage with people and to explain complex ideas to them in a way that they will understand. So I find that the best way of addressing this issue is to constantly share your ideas and have conversations with non-specialist audiences. Wicked. I think we're quite, in the way that we write, quite accessible. Mm. If you think that we're difficult, you know, you I'll throw you some other stuff that's even, I can't, in, I don't even know what they're saying. Mm. But the point that I was saying before is that, you know, so these are complex issues that we're looking at. Um, and, you know, things like Islamophobia and racism, um, they shift constantly. You know, the Islamophobia of today is not the same as the Islamophobia of 20 years ago. And the racism of 20 years ago is very different to today because it's changing constantly. And you have to be able to understand how that's changing. We say, the, we say the base is still the same. The foundation are still the same. Uh, yes, of course, right. But the point is that the way that they're expressed and how and how it works is very, very different, mm. and that catches people out. So people end up doing stuff today that if you don't really know what what you're getting into, mm. um, actually becomes very problematic. Mm. You know, so people get involved in um, events that seem to be uh, very progressive and very positive. But they're being funded by counter-terrorism funds. Like the Spot on. Bradford Literature Festival yep. is a good example of that. Yep. Yeah. On the face of it, it seems to be like a very good, positive endeavor. And, and you know, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm not a problem with that. But the point is that when you, when you do that kind of uh, event through a counter-terrorism framework, framework mm. then essentially what it says is that, you know, we need to do this. We need to have these kinds of events so that these young Muslims don't become terrorists and radicalized and extremists. You know, art is art should be done for itself, in and of itself. It's you know, it's a purpose into itself. Should there's no other purpose for art. Art the only purpose for art and culture is to reflect on society. That's historically what it's always been about. You know, right back to the nineteen hundreds and before that. You know, some of the most iconic pieces of art are those that accurately captured the zeitgeist of the moment, you know, what was actually happening at that time. Yeah. So you, you do art just for its own sake, right? But if you start doing it in the context of counter-terrorism, then you know, what counter-terrorism is doing is it's, is it's um, hollowing out the logic and the purpose of art and it's undermining it, just like what's happening in education with the introduction of counter-terrorism with the preventive duty mm. in the last few years. You know, the purpose of education is shifting quite significantly, actually, and having a really serious impact on students but muslim students in particular so you start undermining the whole purpose of it no before before we we go into the whole cv aspect of, and, and some of your views and thoughts and works towards this area and we will get to that later in the podcast there's a very interesting comment you made about the the process in which someone has to go through when they're doing their phd and that is people constantly scrutinizing uh, methods uh, ways of thinking why you've done this etc etc but at the same time i've had conversations with both of you previously about you know moving towards perhaps decolonizing western academia right how can that even take place how can that even take place when 
people of color or Muslim academics are still kind of within that system? How do how, how do you even begin to change a system uh, which is, I'll be quite frankly with this, grounded in traditional Orientalism, certain notions of the people of the East and people of color and Eastern civilizations. And that is upon which Western academia has essentially been built on. You guys are part of that very system. How do you even begin to even change that? It's a big question. Do you want to go with that? Um, I think I think one of one of the last remaining kind of uh, good things about Western academia is that I don't know for how much longer, but certainly at the moment there are some spaces and some opportunities available mm. in which uh, there are uh, avenues in which uh, critical, radical, uh, different voices uh, can use. Um, a new kind of uh, way of thinking and uh, expand and develop it. So decolonizing the curriculum, for example, is one example of that, where we're using, um, or some scholars are using spaces to challenge um, reading lists, for example, uh, the kind of theorists that are used, the values uh, that kind of guide um, Western academia and trying to challenge that from within and to create new avenues and spaces. Mm. And I think that that is probably one of the only ways really of bringing about revolutionary change. Because if you are to engage in armed struggle, for example, as a way of bringing about revolutionary change, mm. the likelihood is that the state will close you down before you've even decided to do anything. Mm. So knowledge, or as some people would say, epistemological resistance, yeah. uh, becomes the only realistic way of doing that within the existing system that we have. But we also know that the, the status quo and the establishments of today, they sometimes allow certain tokenistic mm. offers uh, to allow some small pockets of dissenting views and resistance. How do we, like for example, what you just cited there of certain academics using certain opportunities like looking at alternative reading uh, literature and so forth. How can we, look, I'm not saying by the way do nothing. I'm saying that, of course do something, but is there always that concern or worry that is this just one of those tokenistic well, measures? Well, uh, sorry, sorry, for, I think this is a really important point you've touched on because uh, a lot of universities especially um, use uh, a, a desire or a claim that they are decolonizing mm. really? to really yes. reflect what they about. mean is diversity yeah. and representation. But even diversity, in, in, in diversity in a very secular liberal context. Absolutely, is, it is a very liberal concept, yeah. right? The idea that if you are around a round table and you have five people of colour, that yeah. somehow this will fix all your problems. Actually, no. Mm. But decolonization, as Franz Fanon mm. uh, famously says, is a programme of complete and utter disorder. Mm. And I think this is the key point here, that there is a commitment or a claimed commitment. Can you just tell us who, for, for, who the, for the views of Mr. Fanon Sorry, was? Uh, Franz Fanon is a, a, a person of colour. He's a psychoanalyst and a theorist uh, who was within France. And he did lots of work around uh, the effects and impacts of uh, colonial violence okay. um, on the psychology of the colonizers. Okay. So the whole process of violence and internalization of white supremacy. And violence, so, right? so, so, so back to this whole kind of decolonizing. So, so you know, Fanon said it famously: the decolonization is a program of complete and utter disorder. Mm. Um, so when universities and other power structures claim to want to decolonize. 
what they generally are trying to do is to co-opt that term as a way of showcasing themselves as being committed to change when actually in practice there is never any real commitment to decolonizing reading lists and the curriculum and bringing in speakers from different parts of the global south not even just the bengali pakistani or so it's kind of putting the wool over our eyes it becomes a way of legitimizing um, the existing system. But the point is that as this it is, is. But the point is that this is nothing new. Whenever institutions get pressured with new demands, there's always a there's always an attempt to co-op. Capitalism does it. Racism does it. Institutions do it all the time. European colonialists have done it all the time. Okay, if you look at today, for example, we live in a post Stephen Lawrence era. Do you know the you know the other reference I'm making? Stephen Lawrence? Stephen Lawrence. Stephen Lawrence was a guy who in nineteen ninety three was murdered. Oh the other oh, the, the black the, the black 18, stone. Yes, yeah, yeah of course yes. Stephen Lawrence. Yeah. So there was an inquiry in nineteen nine that was published called the McPherson Inquiry. McPherson, right? We showed institutional racism in the yes, police. Called what institutional racism mm. we need to we need to make changes. Twenty years later, we still have institutional racism. Okay? Um in, even in even with that seminal report, we still have institutional racism. Uh, one of the one of the uh, phrases that I really like in literature is that we have racism without racists. Okay, we live in a in an anti-racist racist era. Mad. Okay, how, how does that happen? You know, uh, and and this is not just in this context. This has got this like even if you look, for example, in in the United States, in the United States in the eighteen hundreds, slavery was outlawed. Okay, but it can, it still continued in other ways. Okay, there was a, the Thirteenth Amendment. There's a documentary, a really nice documentary called the Thirteenth, and it looks at how this happens. So there was a Thirteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that said slavery is illegal. You can't basically you can't you basically can't make people work for free mm. unless they're they've been uh, um, sentenced for some crime. Mm. Okay, so then all that happened was people who you know, you had this mass incarceration movement of black people, put them into prison, get them to work for free. So slavery ends in one way, but it carries on going on in another way. And institutions and racism and, and capital, they do that all the time. So that's in the same way you can... You... Constantly. And, and so the point that Riz is making is that when, you know, you talk about when these pressures for decolonizing the curriculum come along and diversity and representation come along. Yes, they, they, they are big agendas, but there's also, you know... Opportunities. Thoughts going on at the institutional level as to how to do this change in a manageable way. Change is the scariest thing for institutions. Mm. People in power, people in power want to maintain the status quo. Of course, and there'll always be resistance because, to change. And, and there'll always be resistance to change. But the okay? point, so, so, so look, the point... So the it, point is that this is this change is happening, but it's happening in a way that's, that's, that, that, that they can manage it. Okay. okay. So, you know, just because, so one of the ways that this is happening, as Rich was saying, is the, you know, somehow this idea that because you have more non-white faces in a room, or, 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 you know, in but, an institution, but those, certain change going to come about. But those non-white non faces can equally think and speak like the very yes. establishment institutions of course, people. because, you know, they exist within an institution, mm. right? And the logic of the institution is, is what runs the place, not the individual. It's like, let's go to, you mentioned Black Panther earlier, mm. right? Black Panther in Hollywood was seen to be some kind of seminal moment because it, it reflected, you know, the representation of black people in positive role models. Be careful, non-blacks got lynched for criticizing. Yeah, either. I know. Okay, but the point is that actually, if you look at the politics of the film, it mm. was terrible. 
It was absolutely terrible. The politics of that film were horrendous, right? I don't want to go back into that because I've, I've made a comment about it when it when it came out, and I don't want to. I don't want to go back back to that now. The piece will get plugged in the podcast. Hello. Okay, that's fine. fine. I don't mind that. But the point the point I'm making is that you know you have this all of a sudden you have this movie in Hollywood where there's a, I think I think apart from like one or two people there was a full black cast. Yeah. Okay. Um, Still had a white saviour. Yeah, they had a white saviour. You know, so they had a full black cast, and all of a sudden, this there was this idea that this is a seminal moment in Hollywood. But actually, it wasn't because you know you look at the way in which those black people are being represented, and they're just being you know all you all you have is the white masters have been moved to the side, and the black masters have just taken up the same mm. pulse as the black. You know, if if and and that's one of the things that's happening right now with capitalism and and, and so on is that you know capitalist elites have re- have, have recognised that there's a, there's a lot of pressure from other parts of the world now where and there's a lot of wealth in other parts of the world there's a lot of oil where there's not oil wealth coming from natural resources and, and all these kinds of things from right, right around the world mm. outside of europe so how can we include those people into the system and, and it's what you said you know you you give a little you give a little so 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 what if if there's a islamist in charge mm. in turkey as long as he's a capitalist, we don't care. Let him be an Islamist if he wants. Mm. But as long as he abides by the rules of the game of capitalism, we're, we're happy because our interests aren't fundamentally being challenged. Which, and and really, that's the point about what's happening with all of this kind of stuff with decolonizing cricket. Similar trends and practices and, and, and forces. As a lecturer in, in, in criminology, right? How, how do you contribute towards decolonizing uh, the syllabus or the modules or, or, or your your area of study how do you how do you do it the way i try and initially do it is to try and integrate as much scholarship as i can um that is written by people uh, of color uh, and people who are muslim because ultimately um it's about giving students access to knowledge which questions and challenges their common sense assumptions that they bring to the first lecture theater mm. So in a way, by introducing them to thinkers and scholars who are talking about decolonization and uh, theoretically framing everything through that kind of uh, decolonial lens or framework uh, helps to challenge some of those common sense assumptions. So that's my the way I do it. Um, Have you ever been questioned or pulled up on it? Uh, like, Riz, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, or have some of your sources or your literature ever been questioned? Uh, by the grace of God, not for the moment, um, but, you know, um, I'd be interested to see if that would happen. Has that ever happened to you? Students do it all the time to me. So the question, yeah, why yeah, particular yeah. overthinkers? Well, or... Why do you talk about Muslims all the time? Why do you talk about black people all the time? Oh, God. Yeah, why, do you, well, why, why are we reading this stuff? I think this is <laughs> interesting. Well. More than one occasion, by the way. I, th- I think I might get less challenge on this issue because of my own uh, history and, and stories, which yeah. I'm never shy about talking about in my theatre. I think I think that in, in one respect, it gives the criticism yeah. of structures, institutions and individuals oh, a lot more legitimacy. Because yeah. your experience was a lived experience, yeah, a real life which we'll get to very shortly. Uh, but also this ties into... Look at you, man, using academic terms. What? Lived experience. But this is this ties into an earlier point, Dilly, that you mentioned as well. I've got a BA in politics. Yes, bro. <laughs> I've got a postgraduate in print journalism. Yeah, you're halfway there. Yeah, I didn't read that many books as you guys, but <laughs> okay. Look, so fine. You guys spoke a lot about structures and systems, etc., right? And if no one knew Riz and Fahad, like how I know, I, well, I like to think I know you guys 
quite well. But if someone just tuned in for the first time and, 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 and watched you guys speak and saw the language you're using, there could be an assumption, incorrect, I know, that these guys just sound like very progressive lefty Muslims, right? Um, and I'll tell you what, because there's a lot of about capitalism and capitalism, not much criticism of communism, which is now dead, of course, or socialism, which kind of is now amalgamated with neo-capitalism anyway. The language that's used, it still appears to be quite left-orientated. Is that because the left somehow offers some kind of resistance to the status quo? Okay. Let's play them side for a little bit. First of all, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that language? From an Islamic tradition. What's your, you asked the question. Mm. Uh, so why did you ask the question? I asked the question because certain language and certain words are associated with certain spectrums of, mm -hmm. of, of the political spectrum, That's right? True. Me personally, mm -hmm. I think you can use language from any line of thinking so long as it advances the cause of Islam and Muslims. Okay. That's me, yeah? However, there is a perception, so that's what I'm positing to you both, there is a perception that those people of colour, Muslim academics, who are very critical of the status quo, very critical of the, of, of the global capitalist order, etc, etc, tend to be left-leaning. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, mostly, for the most part, in my experience. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily see it as a problem too much really uh, part, part part of this is that you you know you you reflect and you use the language and the tools and the vocabulary of the environment that you're in mm. okay which happens in any context Riz mentioned institutionalization earlier on right and that's part of it that's part of the story mm. the other part of it is that you know there's a, there's a that in, when you talk about social science right what, you, what you're actually doing is you're reflecting on and you're theorizing about what's happening in this physically existing world, mm. right? That's it. That's your boundary. You're not, you're not talking about anything beyond that. You're not talking about the hereafter. You're not talking about metaphysical dimensions and all that kind of stuff. You're simply talking and reflecting on this physically existing world. And I've heard this criticism before, so why don't you use Islamic language? I'm not saying Islamic language, so you made a very good point. As academics or those within social sciences, you're dealing with the current, the now, the reality, right? Right. If you're saying that you're not talking about the metaphysical Jannah, Jahannam, the Akhra, good, bad, sins, uh, angels, etc, etc. The point is, certain things are taking place, certain things are... I thought that was someone beatboxing outside. Anyway, khalas. the point is, even though you're not discussing the metaphysical, there are things which are happening in the very world that you're living in right now as a social scientist that is, number one, affected by, or those who are affected are affected because they believe in La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, because they're Muslim. And number two, then you were then positing that maybe Islam as a comprehensive way of life may not have the answers and the solutions no, to... I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying you're saying. I'm, I'm saying that. I'm saying that it could be. It could be understood as that. Okay. Well, here, here's here's the way that I I look at. It. Because Islam doesn't just deal with the metaphysics. It deals well, with the very course, very physics. It, it deals very much but with. Here's, it. here's the way that I look at this. Right. Um. And there's a lot of um. There's, there's a lot of people who've written about this. People like Dr. Ahmed in in the US and um. I forget the name of the other person. It, it might come back to me later mm. on. Um. You know, in in 
1060 something, I think it was. There was an Islamic philosopher called Imam Ghazali. He wrote a very important book called, uh, in English it's called uh, The Incoherence of the, well, the Philosophers. Yeah. The very, very, of the philosophy. yeah, yeah, very famous book. A very seminal book in the history mm. of Islamic philosophy. Mm. After and, his own very big journey himself. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, now, oftentimes that book is misunderstood because some people say that what he did in that book was he put an end to thinking in Islamic philosophy. That's not what the book was about. Um, what he does in that book is he makes a distinction between types of truths because at the time and since then actually you know muslims have been have struggled to oftentimes um you know make to join together the truths of islam with the truths of the world okay how do you make sense of that how do you join them together how do you how do you make them coherent right um for example um, I think it's a hadith where Allah says that he split the moon in half. Is that a hadith? Uh, it was, it's believed to be one of the miracles of the Prophet. Yeah, that, of the Prophet yeah. Yeah. That, that he split the moon. That he split the moon. So mm. it's, a, it's, it's narrated as a hadith. Yeah, I believe it's from a hadith. It's yeah, it's from a hadith. Yeah. That's fine. If you look at that as a physicist, as a scientist and so on, knowing what you know about the, the laws of physics and everything, you know that's impossible. That person would reject that's, it. Yes, mm. it's not possible according to the laws of physics and science that we have today. It's just not, it's not, not that doesn't happen. That's never going to happen. But Islamically, we believe it to be the case. Because Allah is the so creator. How do you make sense of it then? Mm. How do you make sense of that? You know, Islam says to you that there's a hadith in here which says that the, the Allah split the moon, mm. right? In half. Mm. But we know scientifically that's impossible. So how do you make sense of it? And Imam Ghazali's contribution was to say, you need to separate out these two paradigms. Okay, there are there are things which are scientific truths and there are things which are uh, Islamic truths and they're two separate things that exist in two separate paradigms, independent of one another. Something might be Islamic truth, i.e., heaven and hell, was an Islamic truth, but it's not necessarily a sign. Point to me where heaven is. Can you show me where? You, no, you can't because it's, it doesn't exist in this dimension. Mm. It it exists in a in another dimension in a hereafter, mm. right? Uh, I understand this is controversial, uh, you know, and I am. Would you, I, I am, would you ever consider Islamic scholarship, Fahad? I think you'd make a good Islamic scholar. You know, know. I don't know. It's, it's an interest, but I'd kiss I'm, your not, hand. I'm not very good at philosophy. I'd kiss your hands. No, I wouldn't want you to do that. I'll give you bed. I wouldn't want you to do that. Okay. Not that kind of Fair person. enough. That's okay. I mean. But what I'm saying is that there are that there are things that are scientific truths. Yeah. And then there are things which are Islamic truths, right? Something which is an Islamic truth, i.e. Heaven and hell isn't necessarily a scientific truth. But you're talking about paradigms here. I'm talking about real life realities where, for example, but, Muslims are being oppressed, people are being oppressed, there are oppressive systems. Islam is a solution to deal with that. Allah says in the Quran, Allah has raised you as the best people and raised from among yeah. mankind because you're enjoying good and forbid evil. Prophet said that when you see a monkar, you change it with your hands. If you can't change it with your hands, you, hate, you speak out against it. If you can't speak out against it, you hate it from within. Uh, Prophet said in a Sahih hadith, when he's lost by one of the companions, what is the best form of jihad? The best form of jihad is the word of truth to a tyrannical ruler. Yes. The, the, the ulama have extracted from these things that this is a kind of blueprint to how a Muslim goes, against, goes about opposing injustice, right. opposing uh, oppression, beyond the metaphysicals of Jannah, Jahannam, angels, etc. So all I'm saying is that when you adopt language of a given reality, of a given era, 
right? Whether you use terms like palace structures and whiteness, etc., etc., whatever language you want to use. Yeah. All I'm saying is that there are a there's a constituency constituency of Muslims out there who I've seen have been labelled as the traditionalists, right? They would simply just say that look, no one like for example, for example, right? I name and I, I I do name and shaming on this podcast. You guys you, you guys are not compelled to to say anything. There's two very prominent individuals on on social media. You have Daniel Hakikatu and you have Dr. Yasul Morsi, right from Australia. Both both individuals I have a very good relationship with. I'm I, and 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 I follow their works and and believe it or not, I actually agree with a lot of what both of them say. But there's been times where I look at some of the things that they say. I'm like, oh, you know, this could be a bit problematic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, if I was to sit these two individuals down, right, or if I was to sit down any traditionist or someone who perceives themselves as a traditionist, someone who sees himself as, I don't know, a critical race theorist or whatever, they'll agree that Muslims are being oppressed. They'll agree that there are structures and systems which oppress not just Muslims, but the poor or people based on their skin colour or their social class. There's definitely oppression taking place. Mm. It's usually done by the rich and powerful and a very small elite group of people who have established systems okay. to make sure that this entire system will not. Yeah. But the issue seems to be language. I don't, so, think, I don't think it's just language. I think it's also... I think it's also... Um, I don't want to start offending people. I'm okay, we, we, well, well, let, me, let me give you some time for you to think about how not to offend someone. Please, what are you saying? Think about it. I'm I think come one, back of the, one of the biggest contributions that socialist scholarship has made is to help our understanding around institutions and structures, around how violence is not necessarily exercised only by individuals exercising physical violence mm. on an individualistic level, mm. but actually how violence becomes embedded within a specific organization or process which discriminates against a certain group of people or a community or a nation. So you're talking about language. Uh, power and language for me are the same thing because through the language that we use, mm. we have an ability to exercise power over uh, somebody. So I wouldn't generally draw the distinction between the two. Uh, language is a reflection of power. When it comes down to Islam having an ability to rule in the domain of the personal, the spiritual, the political, um, it becomes problematic to use that frame of language for two reasons, in my uh, view. As an academic? As a person, um, and one is the elements of um, not having the tools to describe structures. And I think that is something that is quite mm. unique to socialist uh, intellectual thought. So you think the Islamic tradition... So, th so the whole point about structural power or Islamic is a social... Hold on. So the whole point about structural power is uh, the socialist contribution to knowledge, right? right? Structures, institutions, bourgeois power over uh, the proletariat, right? That's the socialist contribution, which is a very useful way of understanding the world. And I think the second component that prevents people from using Islamic references and phrases is the element of criminalization, mm. that certain language has been, uh, criminalization of language that's happened, 
right? And I think the reason why so that's stuff language, like Sharia, Jihad, Khilafah, Caliphate, all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you start using uh, those frames of references, mm. then you are constructed as dangerous, mm. as suspicious, mm. as subversive, and so on and so forth. But using socialist language is kind of okay still. Um, yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Um, but I also think that when you're dealing within the domain or the sphere of knowledge, um, knowledge construction, knowledge mm. dissemination, you are generally dealing with people who are trained in a particular tradition, mm. who understand the frames of references when you talk about structural power, institutions, proletariat, bourgeoisie, etc. Hey, but what, so it becomes more likely that you will be able to explain your point to them. What about when you're talking to Muslims, your community? Yeah, I mean, your... if there is a frame or a, a specific term that um, can be used when you are talking to your community, then of course use that frame. I mean, I mean, but then also you've got to remember is there is the fear factor and there is the criminal component. Of course, and essentially just just five years. What you're essentially saying here is that we're living at a time, at least for the best part of 15, 16 years, where using certain language can get you into deep trouble. Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. But look, you know, you know when you read about the lives of the prophets, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon them all. When you look at each and every single one of their struggles, from Ibrahim alayhi salam to Musa alayhi salam to our own beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all the prophets dealt with power structures. They dealt with oppressive systems. In fact, you know, some scholars, actually, in fact, many scholars have said that one of the biggest struggles of all the prophets, when they came down with the message of monotheism, was that they were dealing with the rich and powerful, the rich and powerful who were resistant to change, who were status quo, who didn't want this change which would be divinely and would be better for the hereafter. And they had very sophisticated system. Fir'aun, for example, was known to have a very sophisticated model of oppression where he carved up society into sects and groups, even social classes, and he used that to basically disunite society. Uh, and, and, and he used even that, for example, the magicians to try belittle the message of Musa alayhi salam. So the point I'm trying to make is, you, you said something about, I get it. So, so using certain Islamic terminologies, especially in the post 9-11 war on terror era, can literally get you imprisoned, right? Um, or can get you in big trouble and can get massages shut down and charities closed down. I, I get all of that. But in terms of internally from an intra-Muslim community perspective, I think it's a tad unfair to say that our tradition, which is grounded in the divine, which is grounded from things that have been sent from the heavens, that when we have so much examples of the prophets, the Anbiya alayhi salam, nearly the most majority of them who we know were opposed by the power structures of their time. Can we not at least, can that not at least be some kind of, it doesn't have to be public, can that not be at least like a middle ground between the woke lefty academics and the traditionalists who don't understand these, Look, these I, don't, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's fine. It, can that be a starting middle ground? I don't think I, that's, that's fine. I, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, you, you, you take goodness wherever you find us. So if, you know, if there's a theory of racism, critical mm. race theory, whatever it is, that helps you understand what's happening in regards to racism today. Mm. What's the problem in, in using that to try and understand this, this physically existing world? The point I was making before about Imam Ghazali was that he said that, you know, you, the way you should look at knowledge is that you should have, you should separate out scientific truths and Islamic truths and you shouldn't mix them together. When you say Islamic truth, you're talking about the metaphysical truth. Yes, I mean the, the truths of Islam, heaven, hell, you know. The splitting of the sea, most yes, splitting the sea and those, all that. Those kinds of things, right? Mm. You shouldn't, you shouldn't 
you shouldn't mix them together because when you mix them together, you do a disservice to both. What do you For do? Example, what, what do you do with scientific truths and the realities of what Islam does say about dealing with realities like the private space, the spiritual space, and the public space? What do you mean by that? Because you're talking about uh, Imam Ghazali, in, in, he, he specifically talked, from my understanding, because from my understanding of that work, he was talking about not getting caught up and making a distinguish between the metaphysical, yeah. which goes against what the laws of science are, right? What can be measured, what can be observed, what can be touched and sensed, right? But I'm talking about when Islam says, or, or when there is an understanding in Islamic tradition, how to deal with oppression, how to deal with injustice, how to bring it back, how to bring back a more a just system and these kind of things. All I'm saying is that I understand as academics uh, in Western academia. So, so you think that internally the Muslims can have that conversation? I don't, I don't see why you can't have that conversation internally, externally, whatever. But the point I, is that the way, I, I, the way that I look at it is that I, I take from whatever I think is useful, mm. whether it be critical race theory, Islamic, you know, I, views on certain issues, whatever, I, you know, you, that's my sort of way of looking at this. So if there's some, if there's, if there's a, if there's a critical race theory that helps you understand the way in which we have racism today in an era of, of anti-racism, that's useful to me and I'll take from that. Um, I don't see that really people in the Islamic world creating, you know, theories of, of racism informed by um, what they've learned from Islam. Maybe that's, that's an unfair thing to throw back at you. I don't know if mm. that's what you mean, but... No, I, I mean, if, if you're saying that there's a lack of Islamic scholarship, which kind of addresses these issues in the way yeah. you guys but, do. But what I'm saying is, you know, what's wrong with just taking from critical race theory to understand the situation of racism today? Because, because some would argue that adopting critical race theory can lead to Muslims uh, adopting, making alliance with other problematic issues and other problematic movements for the sake of we're all oppressed people, right. we're all oppressed minorities, uh, we're all oppressed X, Y, and Z, and therefore we must all unite together yeah. and tackle this. So, and, and so I think what the, what I don't even like using this term traditionalist. I think some of the the more kind of uh, Muslim critics of CRT. That's the that's what they come from because I've I've spoken to some of these critics and I look they, they, no one denies that there's structures part, of, part of the problem there is that there's a very limited understanding of politics and what CRT is mm. okay um, and, I, and I've been observing this for quite what about what about the what, what about the usage of terms like whiteness yeah like is that is that, like, what, what, what does that yeah, mean? because whiteness is a term used to denote a power a global power structure uh, in which uh, white people. Mm. Historically, have uh, dominated for how long? What do you mean maintained? How, how historic? Um, uh, we're talking from Since the colonial, the Enlightenment, even before yeah. that, middle of the 1500s, 14th century, yeah, 1450 uh, 1450 onwards, 1400s onwards, 1400s. So, so we re Renaissance onwards, yeah, yeah. So the global power structure has been favoured in, uh, has been biased in favour of uh, whiteness, uh, white people, um, but it's not individuals. Because some white people are very good people and stand in solidarity and partnership with Muslims and other oppressed minorities around the globe, who can also who can also benefit from the very same to benefit from. But whiteness doesn't just refer to skin color as well. Whiteness is a political idea, ideology, well. right? Mm. So the idea so that you know, black people can also be ideologically white, yeah. Muslims, mm. and you know, throughout history, you had Irish people who were considered to be black. 
Right. You had Jews who were considered to be black in America. Italians were considered to be black at one point. Mm. So this idea of whiteness is a shifting mm. concept. And it's not, it's not people, when people look at that, traditionalists and people who you're referring to, they look at it on a very superficial level and say, it refers to skin, it refers to skin color. And therefore, you know, we're, we're prejudiced against white people, but it's actually not about, it's about more than skin color. Mm. It's about the, the politics of whiteness. And it's the, about the, the internalization, of how but it, but of whiteness gets internalized into but, white people. But it's still, but it's still, it's still, it's still grounded. Sorry, guys, that's Bedford's Hell's Angels. Um, <laughs> but but there is still, it's still grounded upon an understanding that there was a period in time, historically, where things shifted to favour the white power, yeah. or the Europeans, or those who were leading white European civilization. So it is based on skin colour. It is. Yeah, it might have started Not off really. as uh, white people uh, through the musket. Uh, or the barrel of a musket, yeah. uh, making the global order into yeah. uh, a system which favoured white people. But that was then. Whiteness has actually become more insidious now. Because black and brown people around the globe have internalised the notion of white supremacy, the idea that white is right. So even within, for example, South Asian communities, you've got skin lightning, uh, obsession, inferiority complexes, and all sorts. Even yes. somewhere like India, for example, where mm. you have a Hindutva um, uh, government mm. in power, um, they have become aligned very closely with the Trump administration and are pursuing a, a deeply Islamophobic mm. uh, agenda. So they themselves, even though they are brown and have a history of anti-colonialism, have internalized white supremacy and are now actually becoming active agents of that. Um, so the whole idea that what may have started off as a, an adventure, a very violent adventure by uh, white colonialists, has now become actually more expansive and more insidious than it has ever been because it has an ability to co-opt and make people of color internalize their own subjugation. So, so describe to me very briefly, Riz, what, what is whiteness thinking? What does that mean? The idea that the... Um, how, does, how, how does someone internalize whiteness? Uh, so... Without putting tipex on their face. Well, I think uh, there is a, a sense that Europe has been able to, the West or Europe, has been able to make a contribution to the world that no other civilization has. And that's through their... Uh, enlightenment principles around the commitment to reason, to objectivity, to evidence-based thinking, to empiricism. Through all of these uh, processes and uh, ideas, the West has been able to become uh, the entity that represents everyone. And if it doesn't represent everyone, then it has an ability to represent everyone. Um, uh, in the present day and age and also in the future. So it's not just that white people, white individuals are somehow more superior. It's the ideas that have made whiteness uh, claim to be great that have been accepted. So everyone wants to come to Europe mm. to study, for example, from the global south, play countries like my own Pakistan, mm. uh, want to come to Europe um, to study because they value the institutions and the universities, for example, within this uh, country to be somehow superior uh, compared to any other place uh, on the earth. And the reason is, is because uh, Western um, uh, Enlightenment thinking has been spread throughout the world through the colonial project and through language. 
mm. through the language of English. There's a reason why the British taught um, English to all Indians or as many Indians as they possibly could before they left, because they recognized that if you confine someone's thinking to your own language, then they will only ever be able to express something in a way that benefits your power. And therefore, you can continue to rule and have influence, even if you go back Smart to the country. It's genius. And, and, I, and I get all that, and I'm actually in, in absolute agreement. So pre-1450s, pre-Renaissance, what were there any structures of oppressive power? What was, what, yeah, what, I, I, what, I think, what was there before that? I mean, where do CRT guys and where do people who look, who look at whiteness and white privilege and white supremacy and white everything, at what point do you realise, okay... I think, I, think I think that's unfair, though. No, no I'm saying, I'm saying, when does it? What yeah, was before that? The reason I think that's unfair is because critical race theory emerges at a particular moment in history for a particular reason okay. to respond to a particular set of conditions. It doesn't emerge in the 1400s. It emerges much later in the 20th century. 20th century. Right? But you said the roots of it begins then. Yeah, that's when it begins. It begins yeah. in the sort of post, you know, the post civil rights era in yeah. the United States. And it gets developed by the Derek Bells of the world and other civil rights activists. And I get that, but I'm, I'm talking about... So it's unf I think it's unfair. When you talk, when you, when you talk about white supremacy yes. and white power and whiteness and, and basically where whiteness or, or becomes uh, essentially the default... What's the word I'm looking for? It, it basically becomes where they become the, 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 the baseline. The baseline, the default, the string pullers, yeah? I'm saying at what point in history, okay, fine. So so critical race theories and all that, it comes black civil rights movement onward. But I'm, I'm talking about on a generic historical level. If you guys know, before let's say 1400, 1450, what structures of oppression or, or power was it? I can't, I don't know. Islamic? Yeah, I, I can't speak. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that one? Have you, have, have you ever heard of Islamic power structures and Islamic oppressive structures? Um, so I think, I think, look, I always get given this example, right, about slavery. Yeah. So they always say, oh, why is it that you always criticize um, America and Britain for being uh, committed to the slave project? You know, Muslims had slaves. It really wasn't the same as the transatlantic slave trade. Right. But it what, really was. I think the one d distinguishing factor between uh, all forms of slavery and Western mm. uh, slavery or the Western slave project was that the Western slave project, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, institutionalized and made it into a very sophisticated institutionalized business mm. that no other civilization Grant. had ever sure. done. Of course. And that's what distinguishes many of the post 1400s uh, activities and actions by Western nation states, the colonial project. Mm. And that's what makes it so significant today. Their methods of control and governance were not only through the barrel of a musket, but actually they were much more complex um, through knowledge, through artwork, through culture. And for that reason, even though the musket wasn't used, they had an ability to influence the population and the native people in such a way where we still experience mm. that colonial thinking when every parent in the subcontinent wants their child to be light-skinned mm. uh, because somehow they associate beauty with light skin, mm. right? And these are the kind of um, ways in which power is still exercised over uh, the formerly colonised people uh, to create what's called a post-colonial condition. The idea that colonial power still exists. So, you know, it's an interesting point you made, Farhad. Uh, you said that, you know, CRT came at a specific time. I made you stretch that, I'm sorry. 
It's terrible. I won't forgive you. Hey, I'm, I'm closer to you. If you make me stretch again, I'm going to write an official complaint <laughs> to someone. <laughs> uh, you made an interesting point that CRT came at a particular time to address a particular reality. From my reading, right? I don't read as much as you guys. But from my very basic reading, from my this, this, these thin books, yeah? We get it. Yeah. <laughs> the things which is, uh, Muslims are experiencing today Right. Um, it goes actually back to deep into the colonial era. Like, for example, you know, the rise, even with the fall of Granada, you know, when the fall of Granada happened in 1492, that was when uh, Queen Isabella, she sent Columbus out uh, to the New World. And that's when you started seeing the, the, the dawn of European colonialism, when they, when they found new trade routes to bypass the Ottomans and other Islamic civilizations and empires. And I'll find that even in the post-World War on Terror, post-9-11 reality, it's still based on this kind of perceived understanding that Islam and Muslims seem to be the only, uh, I don't want to get you guys into trouble, but like an existential threat. I know you. I, I I know whenever an attack happens, they're like, right, these guys are they're against our way of life and they, they hate our freedoms, etc., etc. But the reality is that there is a movement in the Islamic world for change and self-determination, which is linked back to what's happening at home pertaining to our identity, assimilation, dressed up as integration, and all these kind of things. So, so, what, I'm, so what I'm asking is prevent CVE, contest, uh, building a stronger Britain together, all of these things. Do you find that there's some kind of remnants of the colonial past in these policies? I mean, I, I'm I, I, absolutely. I think that one of the things that prevent is doing, um, you know, a lot of the criticisms and a lot of the commentary on prevent has been about um, its violations. So it's violations of rights and freedoms and things speech, like that. Yeah, like speech and all that. And, yes. and, I, and I think that's a hundred percent correct. And and those criticisms should be made, and it's right that they are made. But I think that. For me, what's more important to think about um, is how strategies like the prevent strategy, but not just the prevent strategy, uh, you know, some integration policies as well, yeah, things like that. There's a recent paper I just read about um, the way in which um, the government is managing young black gang in a way that's informed by its colonial history of, you know, managing black people, mm. right? I think that one of the more important things to think about with prevent is what it's doing in terms of molding the ideal British citizen, okay? And part of that project is also about molding um, an accept what an acceptable Muslim and what an acceptable form of Islam looks like. Mm. Okay, so I think it's more than just, you know, a violation of rights. I think it's also about molding people. And, and you know, that idea of molding is what goes to the heart of the colonial project. Mm. This idea that we need to shape people, as what Riz was saying, and, and you know, taking on the ideas of Fanon, that, that, that we need to mold people in our own vision. That's essentially what Prevent is doing. And in doing that, it's very much informed by Britain's colonial history. Mm. You know, people talk about colonialism was 100 years ago, get over it. But actually, I don't think so. <laughs> Even today, a lot of the kind of terrorism policies and a lot of the terrorism practices neo-colonial have been have been very much informed, and they've travelled throughout history, mm -hmm. and they exist today. Waterboarding yeah. was a very old practice that was used in places like Australia, 
you know, t- today what they do is they, they lie you down on the mat, tilt you upside down like you're doing a bench press, mm. like the recline bench press. How much are you benching at the moment? I don't see it's funny enough. I don't, I don't, I bench about, I don't even bench much. Go on, just say About it. 80. Yeah, whatever. I don't even bench. That's your warm up set. That's, 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 and that's all I do. I don't go beyond that, to be honest. Okay, okay, back, back that's to it. Um, I don't know how we got onto that. What's that talking about? You, yes, they, they yes, you the water Yeah. So what they do is they put you on a recline bench, tie you up, put a mask over your face, and put water down you, put water down your nose yeah. to give you the sensation that you're drowning. Mm. In Australia times, what they would do is they'd put your head on a rock, push down on it with your foot, with the foot, and just pour water over your face. So these practices, and and that's a very simple example. There's more, you know. There's more sort of insidious practices about molding people, molding yeah. Muslims, and molding Islam. We had that in the we had that during the colonial raj. Yes, we've had that for a long time. Yeah. So, so the fu- what, the fu- for me, what is it, sorry for me, what's interesting with prevent is beyond looking just simply at its um, um, violations of rights and stuff. To think about how what is it doing uh, in terms of molding a particular kind of Muslims and Islam, and why is that happening? You know, if you want to understand the war on terror, you know, people always say George Bush was an idiot, and you know, he was an idiot. But actually, it comes back to this, what we were saying, why can't you just distill complex ideas into simple sentences? George Bush did that, actually, right at the dawn of the war on terror. You're either with us or against us. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Bang. That, that, in that one sentence, that's the war on terror. Why can't you be more like Bush and explaining simple ideas? uh, Listen, man, come on. Come on, lad. Don't you solve (laughs) Yeah? That's the war on terror. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And everything that's happened in the war on terror has been about sorting Muslims and figuring out, are these with us? The, or are they with the good guys and the bad are guys. They, are, they, are you a good Muslim or are you a bad Muslim? So are you a moderate or are you a distinction. So, so the, whole, the, the whole point is that we know, we, we, we have got fears about certain countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. We think that they're with the bad guys, so we'll, we'll kill them. We've got fears that there are certain people in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, who we think maybe or maybe not might be terrorists, but we're not going to take a risk. We'll take a run and we'll wipe them out. Right, mm. we think in this country that there might be Muslims who who are one of the bad guys. So we'll put a, we'll put a preventive referral in for them. We'll put them on a control log. Mm. We'll put them on a T pin, and we'll control them. Yeah, and what Muslims are doing in that context is that they're trying to prove that they're not extremists, mm. and, and they're taking on the language of and that's and that's and that's, and, and, and that's where you get the respect, respectability politics, apologism, yes. and all that kind of yes. madness. Yeah, Riz, you were once considered a bad Muslim, weren't you? I think I'm probably considered the worst Muslim now. Okay, no, no, no. <laughs> By a lot of people. <laughs> no, 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 no. But for our viewers, I mean, you experienced something quite crazy uh, some years ago. Uh, are you okay to talk about it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very old story now. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just talking about yeah, it. Like, no, it was, it was a very particular period. You, you downloaded some history. Right? The US, uh, US government website downloaded the Al-Qaeda training manual. Uh, for research. For my research. Yeah was held in seven days, pre-charge, custody, released without charge, whilst my entire life was turned upside down. Um, when you're innocent, you never expect anything to happen to you and therefore you're never prepared. Mm. So the world just turns upside down for you and you don't know really what's... Hey, how long did they keep you for again? It was only seven days now. It's not only seven most, days. Yeah. For most people, they're trying to say... Right, yeah. right, it's it's seven years, years, yeah. But you know, I don't want to mull over it too much as well because I think a lot of your viewers will probably know about the case. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it has profound um, uh, impact. Um, on, obviously on myself, especially seeing that 
I've spent the last 10 years researching counter-terrorism, right? So what started off initially as looking at armed Muslim groups like Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc. When I was accused of being a part of that camp, then I became uh, you know, more interested in looking at how the state had the ability to not only lock people away that were accused of being a part of that camp, mm. but actually how they were behaving towards them and what allowed them to. So for the last 10 years, I've been looking at 11 years, I've been looking at state policy as opposed to non-state actors, groups like Al-Qaeda. Mm. Um, but that that particular arrest took place uh, in a particular well, moment in history in 2008. Mm. You know, um, back then the prevent strategy um, was Brand new, relatively new. Yeah. Um, it had only gone public about a year or so. It, 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 or it so. wasn't so fashionable to be so critical of it. But also what's, what's, happened, about it. what's happened since then is basically this. You've not had a repeat of this kind of uh, counter-terror operation on a university campus or a school because Prevent has become so embedded within civil society mm. and public sector. So whereas in the past, the police would have to rock up on campus with 26 police officers, you don't need to do that kind of dramatic. Because the teachers are doing yeah, that yeah. now. Right. The teachers are doing right. it. So if We're you, all doing it. Yeah, all if you embed uh, a particular... Have you guys ever grasped up any of your students? Sorry? Have you guys ever grasped up any of your students? Come on, that's the second time you've insulted me now. Uh, sorry. I'm just saying. Have you ever done that? Neither confirm nor deny. Okay, there you go. Such a thing. <laughs> Go on. Uh, no, the answer is no. Okay, good. Um, uh, we haven't shocked any of our students Wicked. because we are educators, not security service officers, right? And yeah. this is the key distinction that one has to make when dealing with this mm. is to what extent you can train somebody to equip them with the ability to be in a position to know that they are going to go on to become criminals or terrorists or violent perpetrators in the future. And the first thing you're taught as a social scientist is do not try and predict the future mm -hmm. because nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, and that's what ultimately this entire policy is based upon, mm -hmm. is using risk to make calculated guesses as to what the likelihood yeah. is that someone will do something. But actually, all it takes is one moment for someone to do something or not do something. We don't know. Yeah. And so social science cannot account for that. Okay, look, I, I, as the podcast comes to an end, I, I, I want to I pause at the very last end. I was just warmed up. Now, yeah. Well, you took a long time getting warmed up, didn't you? Well, I'm a slow starter. It's because you stretched. That's why. Yeah, I'm tired now. So oh, yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, Riz, I, I spoke to you about, you know, when um, I think it was Cage, Advocacy Group Cage, who released uh, that, you know, uh, the prevent strategy was founded on unsound science, mm -hmm. right? So what happens if the state ever comes with a peer-reviewed, scientifically tight... Well, the state did come with a peer-reviewed study, but the trouble is, is that the ERG22 study was peer-reviewed um, by, I think it was two academics. Yes. And the journal was published... The article was published in a journal which belonged to one of the reviewers, mm. unless I'm mistaken. Mm. And uh, the CAGE report talks about mm. this because I reviewed that report yeah. at the time. Um, so, so there are huge problems with the, the process of... ERG-22 plus aside. But you know, your point is... Your point. Let's just what, say, for example... There comes from a bit more tight to something, there's the, more the evidence based. The government creates a theory of counterterrorism which is 100% accurate, mm. right? You still can't justify prevent because you can't justify criminalising entire communities mm. because you perceive that one or two of them might be a criminal. And you cannot criminalise an entire community based 
and and formulate a policy which is distributed across the whole of the public sector, mm. affecting hundreds and thousands and millions of people uh, based on one piece yeah. of research that is confidential and not really yeah. under the public sector. I mean, one, one of the theories that the government likes to rely on and prevent policy documents have relied for a long time, it's called the conveyable theory. Yes. This idea that a Muslim starts at point A with a grievance, goes to point B, where, where, they've, where they've come into a contact with a charismatic extremist recruiter and then give, was given an ideology and then at point C, they become a terrorist yeah, yeah. field people. And that can apparently, according to Quilliam, that can happen in the space of a week. Yeah. No, see, wait, I don't even want to go there. Yeah. That can happen in the space of a week. Okay. It's a nonsense theory and it's been roundly criticised, not just in this country, but from other parts of the world. In the States, it's been criticised. In the States yeah. as well, yeah. in, in academic literature, peer-reviewed work. Mm. Let's just say for the sake of argument, that was a correct theory. Let's just say it was theoretically sound. There was lots of empirical data to show that this is actually how processes of radicalization mm. work. You still couldn't justify prevent mm. because you still can't criminalize thousands and thousands and thousands of people because you feel that one or two of them might end up, or you, you think one or two people in this community might end up at some point in the future in the right conditions, become a terrorist and might kill somebody or might injure I mean, it, that's not just... Because you can do that if you want, but then you, you you can do that if you want, but then you can't claim to be um, progressive, you know, a liberal democratic society. You then have to accept the fact that you're a fascist totalitarian society. And if you're happy to go down that route, go for it. But I'm not going to join you down. I'm not going to mm. go down that road with you. Do you guys feel that you know, not not just the UK, but generally Western governments are heading towards that way? Oh, I'd say that certainly. Uh, <laughs> Say, I'd be happy to say that we have become a more authoritarian yeah. society. Mm. Um, more rebellion? Well, yeah, absolutely. For time, uh, for, that's been around for a very long time. Orwell was writing in 1948 mm. um, about the kind of... Though he was talking in a particular different context about the Soviet Union, mm. but we've definitely become more Orwellian society. We've become more authoritarian. We're obsessed with surveillance and technology. Uh, and then using those uh, two tech pieces of technology to um, predict the future, mm. uh, a risk-based society where we're constantly on the lookout and alert for things that could happen, mm. for which there is no real hard concrete evidence, mm. because my position on this has been very clear now for a number of years, and that is that we don't need prevent because we've got a decent common law system which is so based the, on evidence. So, so the existing criminals, so the pre-9-11, pre-7-7 criminal framework, the one that dealt with the uh, IRA and, 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 and such, you think that's, that criminal framework can work? That criminal system that criminal that, that That legal framework has worked for a very long time. It's a simple one as well. If you are, if you, if there is evidence that can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you have committed a, a crime, then you will be stood before a jury of your peers and you will be judged and you will be sentenced to prison. Mm. It's a simple system, um, but PREVENT is not about that. PREVENT seeks to operate in the pre-criminal space yes. mm. where it tries to predict criminality mm. and to influence behaviour mm. uh, and to try and mould and shape a person's uh, way of thinking, ideological perspective. Before they believe this. Not only through violence. Mm. Of course, violence is a key part. There's a threat that the state will come and do something cruel to you or, or violent towards you. So but it's you also right. There's also right through violence, right? You change your behavior. But there's also the issuing of rewards mm. and inducements and uh you know as a way of winning you over. So co-option and, and state violence is not only just based upon uh the threat the threat or the actual use of physical force, 
but is also based upon giving you nice things as a way of influencing your behavior. Be a good boy, I'll give you some sweets. Take. And that's usually how violence operates. It operates through sticks and carrots. Some advice to some advice to Muslim students and Muslim youth who are navigating navigating themselves around today's life in Britain and and, and even the states because we're going to have views from the states as well. How, 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 just just very briefly. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I always think about myself. How, how do you navigate uh, in in university? difficult how do you navigate when you know you see your identity you're seen as a target you're seen as a potential yeah. threat you know you've as well as the fact that people are talking about critical race theory people yeah. are talking about this people are talking about that and how, how does how does someone get out of this or just navigate around all of this you can't get out of it i think that's navigate it and i think what i would say is what i would say to my own younger self and what i would say to these muslim students is be confident stand your ground be assertive Maybe that's a bit reckless. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because that ties in nicely to my yeah. you know, piece of advice. But also be smart. And that is read. Yeah, read. Yeah, you can only be assertive and confident is when you have a knowledge base. And you know what you're talking about. It's a tool, isn't it? No, yeah. Knowledge. So I think they both go hand in hand. I should have maybe gone first and then he should have gone second. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we just reverse everything? <laughs> Do you guys read more than Asim Qureshi? Do we read more than Asim Qureshi? Maybe. We don't read Asim Qureshi. He's, he's far too dangerous an individual. Because the guy reading this, he? That's true. <laughs> By the way, is this the same? Uh, no, no, no. no, no. no. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers, it was an absolute pleasure Thank having you both on. Um, it was wicked. I mean, I thought I was going to feel really dumb throughout this podcast, but I feel quite, I came, I came up no, quite well. No, right. We dumbed ourselves down for you. So oh, thanks. It's not a problem. I didn't know. Thanks. <laughs> no, but that, that, that's, important. that's important because I, that's not what academia is about. Academia is not about this. Sort of, I mean, it is about our retire, but you know, if, if you're interested in public engagement like me and Riza and many other academics are, you're not interested in making people feel dumb. You're not interested in making looking down on people. You're interested in taking them along the journey with you. You know what I mean? And that's what I try to do. And if I don't know stuff, I have no problem in saying I don't know this and I'm happy to learn from other people. I've always have to come to Manchester to see you. You've never taken me on a journey. I always have to come up and see you. <laughs> Bro, I drove yeah. more than four hours today to see you. Okay, yeah. take, take. <laughs> right, listen, it's a, it's a thing on the Blood Brothers podcast uh, because the first episode we've had two guests. I don't know how it's going to work out. Uh, so basically, we offer our guests three options. Um, we follow the rich tradition of our predecessors, and that is when we go to conquering lands, we offer them Islam, jizya, or war. Uh, but I'm not going. But, but, but I'm not. But I'm not. But, we come to. But I'm not. But I'm not doing that to you guys. I'm just going to offer. Can somebody please read me my rights? Okay. <laughs> so you can either have some Bangladeshi delicacy with me, that's shapari and pan, or you can have a thumb war with me. Or you can have an arm wrestle with me. Oh, listen, I'm getting married next month. I can't do anything. Congratulations, my bro. Riz, which is it? Oh, it has to be a barn. Yes. Can I get give, you some barn ready? Yeah. Can I get you some barn ready? Oh, hell yes. Okay. Please do. <laughs> Wicked. Yeah. I thought you was never going to ask. No. <laughs> I saw you eyeing it up. Been looking at it all, all, all night. night. It's I'm been so difficult. I was seeing it. It's, I, I, it's not as mitta as uh, the Pakistani barn. This is the kitab one. No, 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 no. It's not the tobacco pond because that's... I don't even think that's allowed to have, to be honest. It's mitab one, but it's not as sweet as what you'd find in... It's women. all right, Dilly. Why do you, what do you eat? I mean, I'm going to try it. Why do you eat this stuff? I, I, I don't know. I, I, is it like an F, like a breath freshener or is it like a... What is it? I, I, it, it just tastes is it good. Is or something like No, that? no. It can't be nasha. It'd be haram if it's nasha. Yeah, how do you do it, <laughs> No, I just, I just like it. It's, 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 I just like chewing on it. I'm having to stretch over again for the second. I'm sorry, you might wake up again. 
Right. See how he did it as well. Like a full expert. Like he's never done this before. Of course, he's never done like this before. Just, like an expert, man. He's, you could see he's done that before. Um, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> anyway, guys, it was wicked having you on. Thank you, thank I, you, I, I, I genuinely enjoyed having you both on. And, and brothers and sisters, for those of you uh, who want to know more about uh, Dr. Rizwan Sabir and Dr. Fahad Qureshi, you can easily Google them and their lectures and their media interviews and their articles will be online. And that is all for today, brothers and sisters. Please subscribe to the Five Pillars channel. Like this video, leave your comments. Doesn't always have to be positive. Just leave a comment, to be honest. Uh, if there's any thoughts you had about today's podcast, if there's any other guests that you want to see in the future, post on the comment section. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. Brothers Podcast. Five Pillars of Mad Monolith Production.